years ago, I read a story that I want to share with you this morning. So my friend Steve Brown tells a story about the time his daughter Robin found herself in a very difficult English literature course that she desperately wanted to get out of. She sat there on her first day and thought, if I don't transfer out of this class, I'm going to fail. The other people in this class are much smarter than me. I can't do this. She came home with tears in her eyes and begged her dad to help her to get out of the class so she could take a regular English course. Steve said, of course. So the next day, he took her down to the school and went to the head of the English department, who was a Jewish woman and a great teacher. Steve remembers the events in these words. The head of the English department looked up and saw me standing there with my daughter and could tell that Robin was about to cry. There were some students standing around and because the teacher didn't want Robin to be embarrassed, she dismissed the students saying, I want to talk to these people alone. Soon as the students left and the door was closed, Robin began to cry and said, I'm here to get, out, get my daughter out of that difficult English class. It's too difficult for her. The problem with my daughter is she's too conscientious. So you can put her into a regular English class? teacher said, Mr. Brown, I understand. Then she looked at Robin and said, can I talk to Robin for just a minute? He said, sure. She said, Robin, I know how you feel. What if I promised you an A no matter what you did in the class? If I give you an A before the class even started, would you be willing to take the class? My daughter was not dumb. She started sniffling and said, well, I think I could do that. The teacher said, I'm going to give you an A in the class. You already have an A so you can go to class. Later, the teacher explained to Steve what she had done. She explained how she took away the threat of a bad grade so that Robin could learn English. Robin ended up making straight A's on her own in that class. The author of the article went on to say, That's how God deals with us, because we are, right now, under the completely sufficient, imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. Christians already have an A. The threat of failure, judgment, and condemnation has been removed. We're in forever. Nothing we do will make our grade better. Nothing we do will make our grade worse. We have been set free. Knowing that God's love for you and approval of you will never be determined by your performance for Jesus, but Jesus' performance for you will actually make you perform more and better, not less and worse. In other words, grace mobilizes performance. Performance does not mobilize grace. What difference would it make in your life if this were true? What difference would it mean to you if you had an A in Jesus' class, so to speak? If that you knew your, your goodness didn't add to it, failures didn't take away, that as far as Jesus was concerned, in His eyes you were righteous. Today we are going to learn an important theological word that demonstrates that this is true. And a little bit of how it should affect our lives. Open your Bible to Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. It's page 860 if you have a pew Bible. And when you find that, I'm going to ask you to stop. <laughs> to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. This could be a long day, folks. <laughs> Must have. Didn't drink enough. Romans 5 and 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. title of the message today is, I am justified. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. Father, you are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. 
Father, we want desperately to please you in our lives. We want all that we say and all that we do and all that we think to demonstrate your greatness and your glory to a lost and a dying world around us. Father, we are so fallible. We are so prone to wander, given to temptation. It seems so very hard and at times even hopeless that we could do that. Father, today as we study what you've laid upon my heart with this passage, let it sink deep into our hearts and renew our hope in you. Renew our love for you. Renew our faith in you. Father, help us to understand what it means to be justified and the kind of security that that gives us in Christ. Father, we need you to open our hearts so that they can be the good ground. We need your Holy Spirit to come and to take your word and to plant it deep within our hearts so that it could bring forth good fruit for your glory. Today, let your Holy Spirit come and help us to lay aside any cares of life or concerns or other thoughts that we have going on. And in this period of time, to be focused entirely upon you. Help us, Father, to be aware of your Spirit speaking to us. Help us, Father, to be aware of how you're dealing with us as individuals. Help us, Father, to take this, to apply it, and just do in our lives what needs to be done. Father, those that are here today that have never trusted in Jesus as their Savior, show them their desperate need and save them. Some that may be here today, Father, that have fallen away in their relationship with you and they've slidden back a bit, restore them. Those who are weak, strengthen them. Those who are discouraged, encourage them. Father, do what needs to be done in each of our lives that we can be as much like Jesus as we possibly can be. Fill me with your Holy Spirit to give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech to speak your words and your ways for your glory. I love you, Lord. Thank you so much for all that you've given and all that you've done for me in my life. Thank you for this church and the opportunity I have today. I ask all of this in the name of my precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. In the chapters immediately preceding ours, Paul has demonstrated that mankind is unrighteous in our very nature. And we are unrighteous through our sinful actions. Not only are we unrighteous, but our unrighteousness has made us guilty and condemned in the courts of heaven. Worse still, is that on our own we are unable to make ourselves righteous. Our righteousness has left us in a, our unrighteousness has left us in a place where we cannot fix it. We cannot do enough good deeds to make ourselves righteous. We cannot do enough religious deeds to make ourselves righteous. In fact, according to Scripture, all our righteous deeds are as filthy rags before a holy God. Now, one thing I always want to point out is that that says our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. It, he doesn't say that, that our bad deeds are like filthy rags, but apart from Jesus on our own, the very best we can do is filth. And putrid rags. Clearly this leaves us in a bad place with an important question that needs to be answered. How can we be righteous? Now theoretically there are two answers to that question. However in reality there's only one. Let me explain. Theoretically, 
Someone could be righteous through perfect obedience to God's law. Because sin is a violation of God's law. Therefore, if someone perfectly obeyed God's law, then they could be righteous on their own. But before we determine that's the route we want to go, there's some truths we need to know about that. First, in order to be righteous through God's law, we have to keep all of God's law. Galatians 3.10 says that we must keep it all. So what that means is I can't cherry pick the parts that I like and this is the part that I will keep and, and ignore the rest. I must do every, every part of God's law down to the tiniest detail in order to be righteous through law keeping. A second truth about keeping the law for righteousness is that I, I have to keep it perfectly. I, I can't ever mess up. And a part of what makes this difficult is, I can't start today and say, today from this point on, I am going to keep God's law and keep it perfectly and thereby be righteous. Instead, we had to have kept God's law every moment of every day of our lives, from birth to death. And there is where the trouble lies. Because God's law holds a pretty high standard. And the way to understand God's law is to think of it as the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments make up God's absolute standard of right and wrong. Every, every moral commandment God gives us in Scripture, both Old and New Testament, really flow out of what the Ten Commandments say. They're an application of one of the Ten Commandments or another. And I initially intended for us to look at all Ten Commandments today to see how difficult it would be to keep God's law as a standard of righteousness on our own. But that was going to take too long. So I picked out two, just, just two. The first, shall have no other gods before me. Now, on its face, that seems pretty simple. I read an article uh, several years ago by Penn Gillette who said he had kept that law. He had never worshipped any god. As far back as he could remember, he had always been an atheist. He had never worshipped Allah or Baal or, or, or any god anywhere ever. And it's easy for us to say, well, I've never worshipped Allah and I've never bowed before Baal and I've never prayed to Buddha. I've never done any of that, so I've kept that. But the command to have no other gods before me is really more strict than just I only worship Yahweh and I don't worship Baal or Allah or anything else. No other gods before me. The essence of that is that God is first in my life. And so what it means that God is first in my life, it's not just that I say God is first in my life. It's that, that everything I do all throughout my life, that my, my actions and my reactions declare that God is first. That my priorities and my attitudes declare that God is first. That my words declare that God is first. It means we must be able to look at any area of our lives and at every point in time throughout our lives it demonstrates that God was the number one priority. It's difficult. I mean, have you ever in your life done something you know that God said not to do? If you have, you have at one point or another in your life, you have put something or someone ahead of God. You knew what God wanted, but you chose to do something else instead. God was not first. There was another God, so to speak, before Him. It could have been your desires. It could have been pleasure. It, it could have been pure acceptance. It could have been any number of things. But if ever in my life I have done what God has said not to do, 
Or if ever in my life I have not done what God has said to do, I have not kept that command. Because I must have kept God first in every area of my life from the time I was born to the time I died. I I could not have ever in any way, even a, a tiny minute way, ever have violated that command. It's difficult. Now, another one that seems easy is you shall not murder. Again, on its face, it seems easy. I've never killed anyone. Check. But when you look at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us that there's a difference between the letter of the law, the spirit of the law. The letter of the law is you shall not murder. The spirit of the law really is that we don't hate anyone or despise anyone in our hearts. Jesus said that even though you may not have killed anyone physically, if you have called them a fool, or you have said raka to them, well then you have basically violated this commandment. Now, again, we look at that and we go, well I have never said the word raka outside of reading the Bible in my life. But raka was a term of contempt. The phrase raka, it carried with it the idea, if I were to tell Jacob, raka, what he would interpret from that is, I'm going to spit in his face. Right? That I thought so little of him that if he didn't duck or knock me out, I was going to spit in his face. Right? Have you ever despised someone in your heart? Have you ever said words that despise them? Have you ever ran them down in front of others? Maybe you didn't actually spit in their face, but your words showed that level of contempt for them. Then my friend, you have violated this command. Now, if we were to look at the other eight, we would find the same problem. The letter of the law is often hard enough, but the spirit of the law is far more difficult. But this is the purpose of the law. Look at Romans 3, verse 19. Romans 3 and 19. Now, we know that whatever the law says... It says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. See, man, we are, we are experts at justification. We are experts at saying, wait a second, I may not be perfect, but I'm not unrighteous. But I, I haven't sinned. I mean, I haven't done exactly everything right, but, but what you're saying is not me. Well, when we look at the Ten Commandments and we go down through there and we say, have you kept this? I mean, have you coveted? Have you borne false witness? Have you taken something that wasn't yours? Have you lusted in your heart? Then honesty would compel us all to say, yeah, well, yeah. It stops our mouth. It stops us from our self-justification. It stops us and, and brings us to a place where we acknowledge, if this really is the standard, then yes, I am guilty. Therefore, because of this, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For the law is the knowledge of evil. Right? So what it boils down to is, in the end, while theoretically you could keep the law and be righteous, practically, realistically, you can't. You see, the law, it judges on a pass or a fail scale. If we looked at all ten commandments, and you could honestly say that you had perfectly kept nine of them every moment of every day of your life always, 
But there was one. One day you despised someone in your heart. One day you did what God wanted you not to do. Even though it's only one, we still fail. And 90% is failing according to God's standard of righteousness. We have to keep it all and we have to keep it perfectly and we have to keep it always. Even the smallest mistake, smallest violation of God's word, it leaves us unrighteous. It leaves us condemned in the eyes of God. Now, if this is all we had and all that there were, we would be in bad shape. Because it leaves us all condemned. It leaves us all unrighteous. And as Paul said in verse 20, without any way that we can make ourselves righteous, there are no no amount of law keeping that I can do that would suddenly make me righteous. So on my own, I am hopeless. On my own, I am helpless. On my own. There is nothing for me but the judgment and the wrath of Almighty God to come. Unless there is a, another way to be made righteous. Unless there is another way that my guilt and condemnation can be taken away. And thankfully, God has made a way. That's what Paul is talking about in Romans 5 and verse 1. Therefore, having been justified... By faith. Justification by faith. That's the key to being righteous. Justification, it is a, basically it's like a legal term. It is a legal term that describes when God declares a believing sinner to be righteous. Now, the wording is important when God declares a believing sinner to be righteous. God doesn't declare us to be not guilty. We are all very, very guilty. What God does is he declares that in spite of our guilt, we are still righteous. We are still freed from condemnation. See, that's what Jesus, that's what he came to do. Everything about his life, his death and his resurrection was to make it so that God could declare us righteous. That God could speak over our lives and he could take away our guilt and he could give us Jesus' righteousness. On the cross, Jesus, he bore the wrath that your sin and mine deserved. And in doing so, he made it possible for a great exchange to happen. Our sin for Christ's righteousness. And so that we could be seen as righteous in God's sight. And here's the way it happens. Someone shares the gospel with us. Whether through the preaching of the word or a one-on-one encounter on the radio, something like that. But we hear the gospel. So we hear the gospel being preached and the, the talk of sin and righteousness and the judgment to come. The Holy Spirit, He comes into our life. and He begins to make us aware of our desperate need. He shows us that, that we are in fact guilty of sinning and, and we are unrighteous. And for many of us, that's probably the very first time that that thought had ever entered our mind. Up until that point, we felt we were okay. Up until that point, we, we were good with our lives. We were good with our level of morality. We, we saw nothing wrong with how we are. But the Holy Spirit, He disturbed us. He, he disturbed us over our sin and our guilt and the judgment to come. And in that moment, we, we felt a great weight of condemnation and guilt. 
we understood that we were legitimately guilty in the courts of heaven. But it wasn't that we felt guilty. Not like what I call mom guilt. Your mom calls, you should bring the kids down more often. Mom guilt. But legitimate guilt. You've actually done something wrong. In the court of heaven, by God's standards, the Holy Spirit makes you understand you are legitimately guilty. Even if you don't feel you're that bad, you begin to understand that you are. You feel the weight of condemnation. And after the Holy Spirit has pressed down the guilt and the condemnation on us, till we understand that we are devoid of righteousness on our own. He then points us to Jesus and what He did on the cross. And He, he helps us to understand that Jesus' death, it paid the penalty that our sins deserve. And if we, we turn from our sin and we turn to Jesus, that our sins will be forgiven and the righteousness of Christ will be given to us. And in that moment, if we surrender to the Holy Spirit's leadership and if we follow Him and what He's wanting to do to us, a great exchange happens. All of our sin and all of our guilt and all of our unrighteousness is taken away. And it's gone. The Bible has lots of things to say about it. It's gone as far as the east is from the west talks about God casting it away into the sea and remembering it no more. All of these things, it's taken away. And now the righteousness of Jesus Christ is, is given to us. And as far as God is concerned, in God's eyes, you and I, as believers, are righteous. This is justification. This is all that happens the moment that we believe. Now justification, it doesn't happen for everyone. And it doesn't happen automatically. It only happens to those who follow the Spirit's leading. Who when the Holy Spirit makes them aware of their sin and their guilt, they turn from their sin and they turn to Jesus. And at that moment, God takes it away. It's for all who believe, all who turn. But only for those who believe and only for those who turn. See, as a believer in Jesus Christ... When God looks at us, He looks at us as if we had kept all the law. It's as if I had never despised anyone in my heart. It's as if I am as righteous in God's sight as if I had never coveted. As if I had never put my will ahead of God's will. That is how God sees a believer in Jesus Christ. And this is to me a a humbling and a powerful thought. It's humbling because it means that my salvation is really not about what I have done. Probably you've heard the, the old contrast between religion and Christianity, that religion is about what we do and Christianity is about what Christ has done. There's a lot of truth in that. Our salvation is at no point about our goodness. It's not about our adherence to God's law. It's not about the country we were born in, the language we speak, the political party we're affiliated with. It's not, it's not a really about what we have done at all. Our salvation is, is from beginning to end always about what God has done. Salvation doesn't glorify you and I. Salvation glorifies the triune God. It was God the Father that came up with a plan. It was God the Son that fulfilled the plan in dying on the cross. It was God the Holy Spirit that made us understand that plan was for us. It was God the Father 
that, that looked upon our faith and declared us to be righteous. See, when we get to heaven and we make it there and we stand before Him, we're not going to say, God, you and I, we did it. I mean, you, you got me started, but then I carried us to the finish line. God, we did it. It's not the way it's going to work. When we stand before our holy and awesome God, we are going to say, you did it. I mean, how many times have we wandered away? Oh, many. Oh, so, so many. And how many times has He brought us back? Even more. It is always about what God has done, what Christ has accomplished on the cross. And that is a humbling thought to a proud people that like to think we did it. We had nothing to do with it. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit did it all. All we did was just recognize the goodness of what was offered and say, yes, Lord. God did all the rest. But it's also an incredibly powerful thought. Because if, if my salvation is not about what I have done, then there's a high level of security I have in that salvation, isn't there? But if, if my righteousness in God's eyes as a believer is never about how good I am, if, if I have an A in God's class, and no matter how I score on the test, I don't add to that A, then there's a, a part that's also true that when I flunk the test, I don't lower that A. And that's what Paul talks about in Romans 8 when he says that there is, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I want to, I just want to, I want you to imagine what, what if, what if that was true? What if, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you were never, ever, ever going to be condemned? What if, as a believer in Jesus Christ, your relationship with God was never based upon your goodness and your deeds? What if, what if when God saved us, He did not put us on a tightrope over hell and tell us to walk to the end of the line? What if He put us on a broad path and a safe place and He is carrying us through? What if, all of our sins have been paid for, past, present, and future. What if? Isn't there a... I mean, what would that mean to you personally, if that was true for you? When I found out that was true, what that meant for me was that I was free to love God and not let my sin and my guilt destroy me. It meant I was free to live for God and not say, well, I'm not good enough. Because I'm not. At no point in my life have I ever been good enough to do what I'm doing today. My good enough is because of Jesus. There's a freedom and an exaltation I have in God and in Jesus because I understand that all 
my sin has been paid for. All my guilt has been taken away. And for me, hell, hell will never, ever be my home. Not because I'm great. Not because I'm wonderful. But because Jesus is great. Because God is wonderful. Because the Spirit of the living God lives within me. I am, I am secure in my salvation and in my relationship with Jesus. And when we get this and when we understand what justification means, there is something that it allows us to have. It allows us to have what, what I've called a gutsy guilt. Right? Because chances are, there are some in here today, and you live a life defeated by sin. You do want to live for Jesus, but at this point you seem to have more failure than victory. When people talk about their joy and their relationship with Jesus, you really don't know what they're talking about. When we talk about the joy of being free from condemnation, you, you think you wish, I wish I was free of that. For you, the Christian life is not filled with joy and peace in your relationship with Jesus. Instead, it is a place in your life where you feel beat down, fearful, and worthless. And if this is you, then here's what I know. Your relationship with Jesus is the most discouraging part of your life. I know that because I've been there. That's why it's important to understand what we're talking about today. Justification by faith, it frees us from this. And it enables us to have a a gutsy guilt. And a gutsy guilt is what we have when we sin. It is a guilt that acknowledges our guilt. I have sinned. But understands 1 John 2.1 that when I sin, Jesus is my advocate with the Father. I mean, take some time and really meditate on that passage. Jesus is my advocate when I sin. How great is that? As a believer, Jesus is always on your side. Never, never believe anything else if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. He is your advocate with the Father, not when you're good, but when you sin. And we must understand this to have a, a gutsy guilt. There's a passage in the Old Testament that, that I think illustrates a gutsy guilt better than any. The story of Micah is one that is familiar if you've read the Old Testament. Israel has sinned, wandered away from the Lord. What a shock. The people of God are, are suffering for their sin. And Micah writing as, I would guess you would say he was writing as a representative for all of Judah, all of Israel at this time. He says, do not rejoice over me, when my enemy, when I fall. Now, let me stop here. We have an enemy that rejoices over us when we fall. See, Satan, he works in particular ways in our lives. He's pretty sharp. He's been doing this whole Tempting people into sin, bringing death and destruction into the world for quite a while now. And he knows people, and he knows what we like, and he knows what we don't like, and he knows how to 
tempt us in a sin. So what he'll do is, he'll make sure that what we're most tempted by, because we all have something that we are most prone to give into, he'll put that before us. And he'll put that before us and he'll say, isn't that pretty? Wouldn't that be fun? And we'll push back, no, I can't do that. And he'll say, oh, no one will know. No one will ever know. He'll, he'll tell us it's, it's not that big of a deal. I mean, do you really think God would care if you did just a little bit of this? Come on, how, how much could God really care about that? And the more we think about it, the more these answers make sense. Well, I mean, I've been basically pretty good for a while now. I wanted to blow up at Walmart, but I was good. I just smiled and went on my way. I, I, maybe I do deserve this little bit of a break right here. And then we take the fruit and we bite into it. At that point, Satan flips the script. And tell me if this sounds familiar. Oh my gosh. I cannot believe you did that. You claim to be a Christian. You were... You were talking to someone about Jesus yesterday and look at what you did today. Oh, you're one of those Christians who goes to church on Sunday, but on Monday you just live like the world. You're a worthless Christian. You don't really love Jesus. Are you sure you even believed in Him? Look at how many times you have failed Him. What makes you think He's going to take you back this time? Why should you pray? Do you really think He'll hear your prayers? You might as well put that Bible down because all it's going to scream to you is what a terrible, condemned sinner you are. And in that moment, he is rejoicing over us as our enemy. And if we do not understand justification by faith and that our righteousness is not about our goodness, that is where we will stay. And we will live defeated and destroyed and despondent. But we need a gutsy guilt to say, when I fall, I will rise. I love that. Micah is not minimizing what Israel had done. He's not in any way acting like they had not blown it. We have fallen. right? We are sitting in darkness. But we aren't always going to be there. I will rise. The Lord who I have sinned against, He will be a light for me. He is not going to leave me here. Even if I stay, my God will come and get me. Now, there's an acknowledgement that sin has consequences. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned. We reap what we sow. And sometimes there are going to be consequences for our sin. That, that's just, it may happen. It is a high likelihood. But even in that time, I love it. I will bear the indignation until he pleads my case and executes justice for me. For he will bring me forth into the light. And I will see his righteousness. Man, that good? I mean, if you've read the Old Testament, you know they, they had not done bad things. They didn't blow up because there were 20 items in the 10 item or less line. Right? They had worshipped Baal. They had sent their children through the fire. They had done all manner of iniquity. 
And yet they knew the Lord was coming for them. They knew God was not finished with them. They knew that though they had fallen, God would ensure that they did rise. Listen, friends, that's, that's a gutsy guilt. That's, that's the way we must learn to live. We must understand when we sin, not, not if, when we sin, to say, yes, I have fallen, but I'm not staying here. I will rise. Not because of me, because the Lord is going to send a light to come and get me. The Lord will bring me up. The Lord will make my light shine. The Lord will ensure that I am righteous. Now, I think there are three groups of people that respond to this in different ways. One, there is a group that lives condemned, defeated in their Christian life. And for you, life is a struggle to persevere. It is a struggle to go on because you feel so very worthless and so very defeated in your life. And the idea that 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 doesn't have to be the way that it is. That you're not saved and lost and saved and lost and righteous and unrighteous and free and condemned and free and condemned. That is like cold water to your soul. It is something you, man, if that were true, what a difference that would make in my life. There are some that hear this and say, sounds to me, preacher, like you're saying sin's not any big deal. Aren't you making it just a little too easy for someone? Your sounds to me like what you're saying is it doesn't matter how someone lives. That it's all good. Is that what you're saying? For you there's a fear of a loss of holiness and the need for obedience. There's a third category. There's a group that hears this and they think, Yes, I knew sin wasn't that big of a deal. I knew it was okay if I lived in sin. I knew I could do what I wanted. Yes, I'm justified. I have a gutsy guilt. Praise the Lord. My sin is okay with God. And I want to respond to to all of those. And and there is a part of me that wants to tell the first group, plug your ears because this next part is going to be harsh. But I I can't. You have to hear this. This is important. Look at Romans chapter 6. You see, Paul understood that this is how people would respond. He understood that there would be some who would accuse him of saying that that grace, justification, that it meant people could live however they wanted and it would all be okay with God. And he says in Romans 6 and verse 1, well, let me start at verse 5 and verse 20. Moreover, the law entered that offense might abound, right? So the law was given that we would know sin. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, right? So the idea is, That God's grace is greater than our sin. No matter how much the sin there was, the grace of God was greater and bigger and more abundant to cover it all. So that as sin reigned to death, grace might reign through righteousness to the eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Right? He's saying... Because of grace and because of justification, does that mean we can live how we want? And grace is just like, God's like, woo, live how you want. Grace for everybody. It's all okay. 
Verse 2, he answers, certainly not. More familiar with the King James, God forbid. God forbid that we would think that what Jesus did on the cross made sin okay. God forbid that we would make light of sin. Why did Jesus go to the cross? For sin. God help us not to look at the bloody cross of our Savior that died for our sin and say, my sin is no big deal. God forbid we would think such a horrendous thought as that. In fact, I would say, and I would suggest, and I would stand by it if I was pressed on it. If you think justification by faith and the grace of God gives you a license to sin, and it's no big deal. Oh, my friend, you have not been justified by faith. And you have never experienced the grace of God yourself. Because there is no one that has been redeemed by a Savior who died for sin can look at the cross where He died in their place and just rejoice that it frees them to live in the sin that killed Him. It's just not possible. If you don't think your sin is any big deal, if you don't feel any remorse and consequences and guilt for it, your desperate need today is to repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ for your salvation. Sin is huge. Sin is why Jesus died. There is no no possible way that a believer who is blood-bought, spirit-indwelled, devoted to the Christ who died, can act like their sin is no big deal. Our sin should always bother us. But it leaves us as genuine believers with a, a gutsy guilt. I have fallen, but I will arise. I am in darkness, but God will bring me in for light. I deserve the indignation. What I'm going through, it is my fault. God will see me through. Friend, we believers, we are, we are justified by faith. We are secure in Jesus Christ. And that is, that is the truth you've got to know. That is, the, that is the truth you've got to embrace. Because at no point will you or I ever be good enough. At no point will we crack into perfection on our own. Our righteousness, our standing with God will, will always be based upon who Jesus is and what He has done. And, and we must be secure in that. Now, if you've been here throughout the series on identity, you notice that we've talked a lot about gospel issues. First week, we talked about the fact that we are loved despite the fact that we're sinners. Last week, we talked about the fact that God chose us long before we chose Him. Today, we talked about the fact that, that God has justified us and made us secure in Christ. The reason I'm doing this before we will ever understand our identity in Christ and, and let that be meaningful to us, we have to understand the gospel. Everything about who we are in Christ must be rooted 
in the gospel. God's plan, God's goal, it is always built upon who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Anything we do in his name and for his glory, we do it because of who Jesus is and what he has done. And if we are not built on the gospel, rooted in the gospel, we are going to go astray. We will not understand our identity in Christ. The security of who I am because of what Jesus has done, that alone enables me to do the things that I need to do. Starting next week, we're going to talk about things that we do because of our identity in Christ. But what we do is always built upon what He has done first. We must understand the gospel. We must be rooted in the gospel. Everything always flows from the bloody cross of Christ. Because He died, I live. Because of what He has done, I serve. Everything rises and falls on my connection to the Jesus who died for my sin and rose again on the third day. Let's stand as our musicians come forward.